The Good Nature Podcast comes to you from Conservation Optimism and its founding partners, Synchronicity Earth and the University of Oxford. Welcome to Good Natured, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light on conservation challenges. In each episode, we interview an inspiring conservationist. Our fascinating guests come from many backgrounds, artists, scientists, activists, and many more. I'm Sophia, a PhD student focusing on marine conservation. I love doing science and telling stories through film, writing, improvised comedy, and now podcasts. And I'm Julia, a science communicator and journalist. I'm passionate about sharing what people are doing to make the world a better place. Hello, Julia. Hey, Sophia. Today on the podcast, we have our first poet and also our first diplomat, and it happens to be the same person. We're going to be speaking to Omero Ariges, who is a Mexican poet, novelist, activist, diplomat. Essentially, his career has just spanned all sorts of fields, and he has written almost 50 books. Another really interesting aspect of Homero's work is the fact that he founded the Group of 100. And this is a group of intellectuals and artists, and they basically united to tackle environmental issues and raise awareness of these specific issues in Mexico and also internationally. Homero served as Mexico's ambassador to the Netherlands and to Switzerland, and then also to UNESCO in Paris. And he's won many literary prizes. In fact, one article that I was reading about him said that his greatest legacy is his words. And I found that such a fascinating concept. As someone who does lots of writing myself and has a passion for words, I'm really excited to hear a bit more about the aspect of Homero's career and just to understand the relationship he has with poetry who were the inspirations behind him becoming a poet. So I can't wait to hear a bit more about that aspect of what he does. He's an incredibly dedicated environmental activist. He's championed a lot of different causes and species within within Mexico. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from him. Well, Sofia, let's get started then and have Homero on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Omero. You grew up in the state of Michoacán, near the area where monarch butterflies gather for the winter. You referred to the protection of this site as the environmental cause of my life. What sparked your interest in the butterflies and why do you think it's such an important place to protect? Well, because you see, when as a child, I saw the monarch butterflies flying across the streets of my village as, um, I can say, aerial rivers every winter. And then when I was uh, at school, we went as um, excursion every year to the sanctuaries in the mountain called Cerro Altamirano. Then it was like the excursion of the year for, for us as children to see the butterflies in the sanctuary. There has been also one of my worries always that I saw the deforestation. We had uh, politicians and loggers destroying the forest, and I didn't want the hill of my village to have the same fate. Since I was a child and later when I was a grown-up, before I became a 
committed environmentalist. I wanted to save my my uh, the hill of my village, and because it was uh, was the symbol of the monarch butterflies, I want to protect also the monarch butterflies. Then, when we founded the group of 100 in '85. Uh, the group of 100 is comprised of prominent artists and intellectuals who first joined together in March 1st, 1985, to raise general awareness about the severity of the environmental problems facing Mexico City uh, and to put the, the government into action. The, the group also uh, was seeking to halt and reverse ecological and environmental deterioration through the country and in defending various species and their habitats to ensure the continuance of Mexico's real uh, rich biological diversity. We wanted to protect the monarch butterflies. In 86, there was a lot of threats to the sanctuaries and we, I asked the president of Mexico at the time to declare protected sanctuaries, the habitat of the monarch butterflies. And they answered there was okay, and there were five sanctuaries protected in October 86. And then the problems didn't finish there because there were a lot of illegal logging and also there were like caciques, local caciques, uh, destroying the forest. I have to. I wrote many, many articles in the newspapers. I made I made many calls to stop the logging. Then, when I was ambassador to UNESCO, one of my ambitions, private ambitions, was to to get the UNESCO to declare the sanctuaries in Mexico natural heritage of humanity. And we got it in also before I was leaving UNESCO. Uh, they approved the Committee of the Natural Heritage. They approved the Monarch Butterfly Sanctuaries as protected natural heritage of humanity. And even I wrote many poems of, you know, it was not only an environmental fight, but also was, was a continuous inspiration in my writers and poetic, poetic uh, work. And I wrote many poems about the butterflies and also a book called The Mountain of the Butterflies. Then for me it was like um, a symbol of the environment because you see it's a, such a fragile insect flying from Canada to Mexico, crossing thousands of miles from country to country to spend the winter in Mexico. They appear in, the, in November the second the Day of the Dead, because the local people thought that the, the butterflies were the souls of the dead people or, the, or their own families who were returning to the earth in, in the shape of butterflies. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I grew up in Mexico and I didn't know that there was that association between the monarch butterflies and the Day of the Dead. Before I was born, I had three sisters who died before I was born. But among the, the group of the dead people coming back to, to Earth in the shape, in the form of butterflies, sometimes I felt that one of my sisters or the three, they, they were coming back. They, I, I felt the presence of a supernatural 
uh, humanity coming back to, to the plant in the, in the form of butterflies. I love the idea to have the butterfly as a symbol of this. It's, it's really beautiful. And actually, I just wanted to ask you a question relating to the, the group of 100 that you've mentioned before. So you, you've got, as you said, artists and intellectuals together. Why was it important to you to bring both artists and intellectuals? Because, you know, in Mexico, as in other, in other countries in Latin America, but especially in Mexico, the intellectuals have to be like public uh, figures. They, they is a tradition like Diego Rivera, Pablo Neruda came to Mexico, there was Octavio Paz. There were people before me who were uh, defending uh, political causes and also because I was a poet, the, my group were intellectuals. I was, uh, had friendship with painters like Francisco Toledo, Tamayo, Leonora Carrington, the surrealist painter, and also architects, uh, journalists. That was my medium. Then it was natural for me to go to them, to ask for support to, in the environmental cause. And suddenly we make even the first, the first um, uh, exhibition of uh, ecological art in Mexico, 85. And there, there was almost, uh, for example, there was a, pa a painter called Tamayo, uh, very famous. His paintings were uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he asked me, I lend you a painting. But what is the insurance? Who is coming? What, uh, how is the transportation to the gallery, everything? And I said, Rufino, Rufino Tamayo, you have to send it yourself because we have no money. No have no money for insurance, for transportation, nothing. And this is your uh, cooperation for the environmental cause. And they accepted. There were many painters who, whose work was very valuable, but I said, you have to cooperate and to, to take care of your own work yourself. What specifically do you think that artists bring to the environmental cause? Well, because it's like we, we motivate, motivate them uh, the defense of the planet, of life. And also because sometimes in a way, in different um, perspectives, our um, environment is like very important for us because defending the environment is defense Humanity is one of the key reasons to defend the environment. We, def we are defending life because we are defending water, air, earth, and uh, f uh, food, uh, and also culture. Because uh, we can live without the nature. Nature can live without us, but we as human beings, we can live without nature. So I was really curious to hear a bit more about the aspect of your work that is uh, poetry. So you've been described as an eco-poet before, and I was wondering what drove your interest for that specific artistic format. Well, you know, I, I am fundamentally a poet, but uh, I can, I have heroes in poetry in the past, like uh, Virgilio, Homer, my name, all the, the Greek philosophers like Heraclitus writing about or, or talking about the, 
the fourth elements, and the four elements of philosophy are also the four elements of life in the planet, air, water, fire. Then, then for me, it's, it's not only a, cause, a cultural cause, but it's also a mythology, and also the, the foundation of the human culture, civilization, is, is based in, 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 the, in the Earth and uh, planetary and also daily basis of uh, agriculture, mythology of rivers, lakes, the seas. For example, you have all the, the Nordic uh, traditions is based on the sea. Then, then this, uh, everywhere you find the, conce the concept of, uh, of Earth. And, and I, I try to... I, 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 for me, it's not a culture, it's a daily life experience. Nature is not only a concept, but, but it's a way of life. I, I love trees, but also uh, butterflies, bees, every, every living creature, because I, I, I grew up in this mysticism of nature. And for me, you have to defend the things you love. I know that uh, poetry is not uh, uh, is not very popular in the ways that you can make money anything, but I love poetry and the environment for for me is the poetry of life. I can't uh, be living in a world without poetry in a humanity be a member of humanity without feeling the the poetry of the human beings. You've been an ambassador from Mexico to the Netherlands. Could you tell us a bit more about how that experience affected your environmental activism? When I went to Holland, what can you do in Holland for the environment? Happened that at the time, as an ambassador, I received many letters from those people, that, and that was in 79, in, in the 70s. It was the beginning of the uh, many activism in the Netherlands, uh, the, defending the sea turtles killed in Mexican beaches. And they were writing to the embassy, complaining and sending uh, letters to the Mexican president about uh, the killing of these uh, the sea turtles. Then I sent it to the president. I, I had no manners, not to say political manners. And because they were letters addressed to the president of Mexico, I sent it to him. And he became very angry. And that was some first act in defense of the sea turtles as in my position as ambassador. And I wrote articles defending that because nobody wanted to take it. I was talking one day with the Newsweek correspondents here in Mexico City, and they didn't want to publish an article with the photos of the bloody killing of sea turtles in Mexico. Until I said, oh, I have to police myself with my name. And I investigate about the killings, and I wrote five articles in, in the newspaper La Jornada in 89 called The Sea Turtle, the, the, the Way to Extinction. And it was very well documented, and I denounced the Marines in Mexico, the poachers, and the people in the Ministry of Fishery, etc., was very um, direct thing. And we, we began to move to protest and 
uh, in close ties with American groups defending the marine turtles. And we had allies everywhere until in 1999 and 1990, the Mexican government was forced to declare the total ban in the killing of uh, marine turtles. And because I am a poet, sometimes the, the people in Mexico didn't pay much attention to me. They thought that I was a little crazy. They said, oh, he is a poet. He is responsible. And I was happy to they consider me responsible and a little crazy because I was very direct in my fight. So that sounds really challenging. And, you know, obviously it's quite a difficult work that you're doing, but what makes you optimistic about the future of nature? What makes you keep going? Well, I, I am not, I am more than optimistic. I'm very pessimistic. Even if everything is lost or difficult or there is not going to be a solution because you are fighting against thousands or millions of people who have no conscience, no no environmental conscience, and there are like uh, predators. Then I have the motivation that even if I can find a solution to the whole environmental problems, myself as a human being, I have to do everything in my hands to try to change the problems, no, that... That is not only one day you have to be have a convic conviction to defend the environment, even if you know that the forces against uh, of destruction are very big. You have governments, you have uh, corporations, you have individuals, you have criminals, you have many people against uh, against uh, a nation. That is very difficult. But you, as a human being, you have. Uh, you as a person who have environmental conscience, you have to do everything your hands, always in peaceful ways, in legal ways, but to defend the environment. You have to defend the things you love. We have one last question for you, which we ask all of our guests who are on this podcast. If you had to choose one species to advocate for, so just to make your strongest case about why everyone should care about it and you know, do our best to protect it, what species would that be for you and why? It's very difficult because I love dolphins, I love monarch butterflies, I love bears, I love bees, I love many things, I love trees. I love life. It's an ecosystem, the ecosystem of life. That is very difficult to say what you prefer. All are beautiful, even the nasty ones that are dangerous. I am nobody to judge. To, to choose one species against the other. My motivation is love. It's love of nature, it's love of uh, life, and al also uh, love of humanity, because I believe in humanity as a moral and rational and beautiful part of, the, of life. It's a really tough question. So I think, you know, you're totally in your right to just not pick one and, and say that you just love nature as a whole. I think that's a beautiful answer. Now we are really lucky because Homero has offered to read us one of his poems. He's going to be reading A una mariposa monarca or To a monarch butterfly. Homero, can you tell us a bit about this poem and why it's meaningful to you? It's because it's the symbol of life or nature in the village I was born. To see the monarch butterflies flying will be, for me, like a 
symbol of the life. For me, the monarch butterfly is like a symbol of, of resurrection. Wonderful. Can we hear the poem? Yes, yes. First in Spanish and later in English. A una mariposa monarca. Tú que vas por el día como un tigre alado quemándote en tu vuelo. Dime, ¿qué vida sobrenatural está pintada en tus alas para que después de esta vida pueda verte en mi noche? Tu amonar butterfly. You who go through the day like a winged tiger burning as you fly. Tell me what supernatural life is painted on your wings so after this life I may see you in my night. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye, Omero. Bye-bye. Good luck in the pandemic. So, Sophia, it sounds like we've had our first pessimist on the podcast. I'm quite curious to hear your thoughts about that. Well, actually, I have a little revelation for you, Julia, because he is actually, dun-dun, not the first pessimist we've had on the podcast, because I took a test and it turns out I am also a pessimist. (laughs) What an absolute shocker. You've been on the Conservation Optimism podcast pretending to be an optimist this whole time, Sophia. There's this researcher called Sarah Papworth and she was doing a study on optimism and pessimism and she had a little scale where you had to answer all of these questions and I think you needed to have a score of something like over 18 in order to be an optimist and I was way lower. So it turned out I was a pessimist. But the thing that she explained to us is that actually pessimists are also really important because they bring an element of realism and also help to balance things out and have a different perspective. I thought Homero's response was really interesting though. I can really relate to the fact that there's so many challenges in the environmental world that I can see why you'd be feeling quite pessimistic about it. But I really like the fact that he still explained that despite all these challenges, he still has that drive to act and make a change to just make sure that nature is there for the future generations. And I think that's really powerful. I completely agree. And also, ultimately, optimism, I don't think, is about saying everything is perfect either. It's about kind of acknowledging the reality of a situation and still forging on because things are important to you. And in this case, for us and for him, nature is important. And how cool to hear him read that poem, which related so closely to the themes that we talked about in the episode. I thought it was really interesting the way he talked about nature and legends and you know the fact that you've got all this mythology around nature and some of the species that he mentioned um, actually having a link in the mythology and belief system in, in Mexico was the monarch butterfly and I really love this idea that because the monarch butterflies come back on the day of the dead during their migration that they are believed to be the souls of ancestors coming back and that was Something that I thought was really beautiful and really poetic in a way, having this link to that specific species and making it so special to people. Yeah, really meaningful. And it just shows how I think that 
you can have these linkages. So for example, you know, having this migration then linking into a very special day, it's an amazing thing to think about how our calendars can intersect in that way. And also he had some incredible visual images about the butterflies as well and about the fragility of the species and about what that can say about the environment or about us. I loved how he talked about aerial rivers as well when he was talking about them because just this vision of these butterflies sort of streaming through the sky is so lovely and I've actually gone to see that place when I was little my parents took me to go and see the monarch butterflies but I just remember it being so incredible to kind of walk through and it looked like the monarch butterflies were leaves on the trees because they were all, there were so many of them and they were all congregating on these trees and it looked like they were orange leaves. It was just so beautiful. And one thing that resonated for me in what you just said as well is this idea of calendar and seasonality. And I think that's such an important part of the relationship between nature and humans actually is that we do have this seasonality of you know in spring we know that it's spring when we start seeing flowers coming out or in France I know there's a bird species that we spot at some point in the autumn and then in spring and we're just like oh they're going on their migration or they're coming back so it's this time of the year and I think this rhythm and this connection to nature is also in its own way very poetic. When we were going to do this and I knew that he had worked a lot with monarch butterflies I looked up the collective noun for a group of butterflies and it turns out it's a kaleidoscope. I think that just in this conversation, we've seen how many different meanings these butterflies can have. And they can just be refracted into all of these different images of what they mean, of what they are, and to bring us different types of understanding. Another thing that I wanted to talk about is the fact that he was in a really special position as, for example, an ambassador, um, as a very well-known artist, and perhaps he was somebody who did have a direct line to the president um, in order to affect change or to, to access all of these really incredible, well-known artists. That's not something that all of us have necessarily, but I think that there is something we can take away from this example. And I think that it's just finding the other people who do the things that you're interested in and trying to work with them and push forward change. Even if you don't have all this, you are still able to make a difference for nature in your own way. And I think every little action really helps. And you have the power to raise awareness within your family, within like your group of friends. So I think it's really important to not be discouraged by the fact that you don't have these things and so your power is so reduced. You never know what might snowball and become a big thing. Yeah, and... For example, I think it was interesting that when we asked him, why did you start a group of artists and intellectuals? He was just like, oh, because uh, that was my group. You know, like those were the people that I knew. Those were the people that I hung out with. And it turned out we all cared about nature and the environment. So we decided to band together and do something about it. I love this idea of finding who your crew is, but I also feel sometimes it might not be your direct friends and family. You know, sometimes you have to actually search a bit further away to find your crew but with social media nowadays and the fact that we've got the internet and forums you can easily put something out and find people who are interested in the same thing as you are or who complement you in a certain way so you know 
if you're really keen on having some kind of campaigns around the environment and your thing is really words, then you might want to team up with a photographer or an illustrator to bring in the, the visual side of things. And actually last weekend, I took part in the virtual Youth Changemakers Convention. And it was such an inspiring event to just be with all these young people who are in their own way activists or in their own way making a difference for the environment and are really passionate about it. And I think sometimes going to specific events, even if they're virtual or just joining Facebook groups, it's a great way to find who your crew is. So if we have the ambassadors pushing things forward and the artists pushing things forward and the poets pushing things forward and the conservation scientists pushing things forward, then I think we can get to a good place. And I think that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can send us voice notes at podcast at conservationoptimism.org. And you can also subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you can, you can also rate us on Apple Podcasts and that helps other people find us. This episode was funded by an ESRC Impact Acceleration Account Grant through the University of Oxford. Original theme music composed and produced by Matthew Kemp.